Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the English Institute of Sport, Ben Rosenblatt. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really simple. So the Nordboard is a fast and accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury. But what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard comes into play. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is going to give you the right information so you, the practitioner, can make the right decision at the right time. With the Nordboard now available and being bought by the likes of David Joyce at the GWS Giants in the AFL, if you're interested in finding out more information, you can email info at valdperformance.com or visit valdperformance.com. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the Push Band is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the Push Band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1RMs with submaximal load so you can plan with confidence. So the push band portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customize everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm up and creating working sets and supersets. Uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the Push Band, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com. They also got a great blog, so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Mladen Ivanovic and Dan Baker. So be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode 70 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So just before we get over into the chat with Ben, just want to remind you of episode three of the Pacey Performance webinar series with Matt Jordan. So if you are interested in hearing Matt present on monitoring athletes, detecting asymmetries and fatigue, you can get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Matt, that's M-A-T-T. So all the details are on there. It's gonna go live on the 21st of February at 7 p.m. GMT. So if you're interested, get over to that, uh, that link now. So I'm not gonna introduce Ben at all. The episode is great. You'll absolutely love it. And let me know what you think. Okay, thanks for tuning into the Pacer Performance Podcast. Today we've got uh, Ben Rosenblatt on the phone, who is the senior SNC coach for GB Hockey. So, just before I give Ben a little um, little intro, just want to uh, thank him for his time uh, on a Sunday evening to speak to me. So, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks very much, Rob, and it's a it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm a really big fan of the work you're doing, and uh, it's an honour to be invited with the 
sort of high level of the guests that you've had on um it's very humbling so thank you for inviting me absolute pleasure mate so obviously i saw ben present with with jonas uh, a couple of months well just before christmas so after that i don't think i'd seen you present before or speak before so after that i had to get you on the podcast so um do you just want to get anyone that doesn't know just to give you give them a bit of an intro into your, your background your education and what you're currently doing uh yeah so um, yeah, my role at the moment is the senior strength and conditioning coach with the um, GB women's hockey team. I work as part of the physical preparation team for GB hockey. Andy Hudson runs the department and he um, is uh, the, he leads the programme for the men. Uh, Tom Drowley uh, is the S&C coach who works across both programmes in a development programme. And we've got two work placement students. Um, one is uh, an SNC work placement student who's completing a PhD in biomechanics and motor control. His name's Tom Ruska. Um, and uh, another one is completing their final year of uh, their physiology, their sports science undergraduate. Uh, undergraduate. Her name's Megan Moran, and she works as our physiology work placement student on industrial placement. So that's our kind of team. I also work with the um, some fight, some of the Great Britain judo fighters. Um, and I've been working with them for about seven or eight years now. Um, yeah, um, and we continue to work towards Rio for those guys. Um, I've got a small consultancy where I kind of go to go and get to talk to lots of different people and kind of learn from them, help them solve performance problems. And I recently completed my PhD in biomechanics and strength and conditioning. Uh, I was particularly interested in specificity and looking at how exercises transfer into performance and basically what the biomechanical basis of exercise selection should be. Um, so that's real my kind of real research interest area. And before that, I worked in the BOA's um, intensive rehabilitation unit, and that was a residential rehab centre, um, and that was established to yeah for residential rehab. And the idea is to accelerate the rehab of injured Olympic athletes. That was an incredible experience. And prior to that, I, I worked in professional football. So how was the um, how does how does football compare to the uh, the rest of the the CV? Um, in what way? To add it, um, yeah, in what way? Yeah, just just the the kind of environment, the culture, the you know the the size of the team, the the yeah. quality of the team. Not not I was in the the playing team. I mean, the, obviously the staffing. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting actually. I think that. Um, like every single team that I've worked with and every sport that I've worked with have got their own sort of microculture or they've got their own um, identity and every sport in particular. And I'm sure that people who have... Um, I always remember I did some work with some gymnasts and I was having a chat with the coach and the coach said to me, he don't, I don't think you understand, Ben, this is gymnastics and gymnastics, the gymnast bodies, they adapt differently to all the other different types of athletes that you work with. And of course, we know that that's not to be true, but that's kind of what every sport thinks and every different team thinks, you know. And you can't go into one sport and go, you can't go into football. When I worked in football, before that I worked with the British Olympic Association and again in the build-up to Beijing. And, you know, and I said, well, this is what we did with the um, with some of the rowing team. They go, hey, listen, we're not rowers, we're footballers. And, yeah, but... <laughs> so, so, yeah. And so I think it's really important. So every single team and every single um, sport has got their microculture and it's like their tribe. And when you start working with them, you spend the first chunk of time generally just trying to get accepted into the tribe. 
um, and then you can start to try and work with the tribe and contribute and become part of the tribe as well. Um, so that, those are kind of, I think those are, I suppose you asked what the kind of differences were, that, those are the similarities and that, that's the kind of way I approach it, <laughs> really. Become part yeah. of the tribe first and then it's all the same, you know. Yeah, of course. So it interests me that when you see people's kind of CVs on, on LinkedIn when you're stalking them, maybe, maybe that's just me, but um, <laughs> you, see, you see the CVs and you you see some guys who have been in football for 20 years or people like yourself who have maybe jumped around and, and, and experienced different sports. But how do you, how do you go about making that transition from say football to, to judo having, actually you've, you've mentioned the similarities, but with the differences as well. So how, how do you become part of that tribe when you, when you enter that environment? I think that the the important thing is listening. Like the first thing I always try and do when I work with new people, and, it can, and the people that I continue to work with on long t- long term as well, like really listen to them and say, "What are they, what are you actually trying to achieve?" Um, and what and you've got to have sort of good self awareness around your skills, your expertise, your the things that you know, the things that you that you can deliver, um, and have, you've got to try and get a real thorough and complete understanding of the scenario, the situations or the problems that the athletes and the coaches that you're going to work with are facing. So you, for me, the, the the most important thing you can do is do a good deal of watching and listening and really trying to understand what it is that these guys are trying to achieve and trying to do the constraints that are placed on them. Um, and then, then you've got an opportunity to sort of match that up with what you've got a picture in your head and then go, Okay, here's how I think that we can impact. And then the, the another thing is actually having a common language. And a lot of the time it's bending your language to suit the language of the people that you're working with um, to make sure, because it's not about, yeah, it's not about people understanding you, it's about you being understood by people, um, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Um, yes, you said earlier that I could, that at some point in time, I could scrub stuff out, so maybe we'll go and do that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so for me, the, the 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 critical things are understanding what you, precisely what your skill sets are, precisely what you know what impact you can have is, um, and the, the skills of the team around you as well, and knowing that the limitations and the knowledge, uh, the limitations of you and your knowledge and your skills, and then so go well. Is this an area I need to grow? And then having a really complete understanding of what it is that the people you're working with are trying to achieve and what limits them, um, and what they can leverage off. So those are always the conversations I continue to have with um, the coaches that I continue to work with as well. How is this fighter going to win an Olympic medal? How is our team going to win the Olympic Games? Um, what do what are our threats to doing that? What do we need to leverage off? And talk broadly, nothing to do with physical preparation or sports science, just what is it that's important? And if you can work out what's important, then you can work out where you're going to impact. I mean, you mentioned there about about what's the what's the question and that just reminded me of something we spoke about before just about gps yeah and i've spoke obviously saw you present um just before christmas and there seemed a real connect between you and the coach with regards to programming and things and obviously that's why i've heard that you're doing really good stuff with the gps so what how do you foster that relationship with the coach and secondly how is that been able to you to really use use GPS to inform and uh, and program off the back of it. Yeah, for sure. I'll probably uh, if I could talk about the GPS stuff to start with because I yeah, can yeah. certainly talk with the approach that we've taken with 
with that and how the, the place we're up to now. Um, and then maybe talk about the pr- approach to take to building relationships. Absolutely. It's funny actually building relationships when like, do I have an approach to building relationships? It kind of feels a bit subversive. It's almost like, re- you know, when people have read the, the, you know, that chat up book, the game and they go, right now I'm going out and going to meet a girl. It's kind of a bit like, oh, come on, that's cheating. Yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> So I suppose the um, the, the GPS um, yeah the GPS side of it. When I started to work with the hockey team, uh, the first conversation I had with the time was with uh, the the guy who was head coach at the time, was a guy called Jason Lee, and we were looking at the team and he was looking about where he wanted to go. And I, you know, it's exactly the same questions. It's like what you what do you need me for? What am I here for? What what does physical preparation mean to you? What's the important parts of my role? What do you want me to deliver on? And he said, look, it's really crucially that I need to develop this team. Like This has been one of the fittest teams in the world. Dave Hamilton worked with the group beforehand. It's just been one of the fittest, most athletic teams in the world. The rest of the world are catching up from that perspective. And if we want to do well, we need to develop as a hockey team. So therefore, I need to spend as much time on the pitch with them as possible. Um, so your job is to make sure the players can turn out for every training session and, and to try and find a way of developing them physically through hockey training. Um, so we had these sort of uh, 16 GPS units, which were the old GP Sport ones, um, and um, they kind of they were used intermittently throughout different tournaments um, to try and understand the physical demand of international hockey because no one really knew that from a scientific perspective. Um, and then we um, so we kind of had these units said right, well let's bang them on for training every single day. Um, and then at least what we can do is try and gain an understanding of the physical demand of the different types of drills that the coaches employ. Um, and then we can interpret that into the language that we know as sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches, which is sort of general stress and sort of physiological load. Um, and then we can help inform the coaches or help make, give them a framework for making training decisions off. So we can say to them, um, this is a high loading day and we feel that throughout this period of time, for example, we really like to overload the, the cardiovascular system for these couple of weeks. Therefore, um, based on the data captured and collected, we know that these type of drills will help deliver that or these constraints on the drills will help deliver that. Um, so initially, what I looked at, um, so I suppose if I talk about the drill analysis first and then the programming and stuff, and then I can not into some of the GPS detail, what we did with the, the, the sort of drill analysis to start with um, was, yeah, exactly like I said, we, we looked at the different drills, categorized it based on uh, the, 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 the sort of the magnitude and the variability. So how consistent would each player deliver these things? So if it was a, uh, a 2v2 over a you know, a half pitch, for example, then the variability in the data would be quite low because basically, you know, the players are exposed. They have to do a critical amount of work in order to complete the drill. Um, For example, if they did a running drill, then the variability between players would be really, really low because they're all doing some running-based work. Um, But when it came to more match play and more tactically orientated games, the variability between players was very, very high. Um, So... Then we could turn, and then by characterising that over periods of time, we could turn around to, uh, and say, well, these players haven't consistently been receiving a certain amount of training stress, well, these players have. Or if we're going through a period of time or a phase where we think the physical demand, putting a high physical demand on the players is important, 
we should pr try and stay where possible away from these more tactically orientated drills because then um, yeah because the physical loading that some players won't get exposed to the physical loading or some might get overloaded um, and then you know I went down a bit of a route uh, of going well actually we know what a high demand aerobic interval session might look like for example it might be six to ten blocks of four minutes on two three minutes off and we know what a hard hockey drill looks like um, which will give us those type of uh, that kind of cardiovascular response that we're looking for so let's do six to four sorry, six to ten blocks, four minutes on, two minutes off for this game. But because the variability in the data was large and, um, uh, yeah, because the data and the, the, the sort of the, the variability between athletes was large um, and it didn't really work because of that reason and also it didn't actually meet the tactical requirements or the technical requirements of the coaches because it was kind of, okay, we're only going to play this drill for four minutes or we're only going to do this for six minutes. And sometimes you just need to let the game flow um, or sometimes the, you know, you miss by being so prescriptive, you miss the sort of iterative process that the coaches have, you know, coaches have built up an enormous amount of sort of tacit understanding of what it takes to, to develop a team and the, the journey and the direction that they're taking. And there's a large amount of feel to it, which has got to be respected. And just because we can't characterize or quantify that doesn't mean it's not important. Um, so by me saying we're going to do six blocks of four minutes today and we're going to do eight blocks of four minutes next week, it looked really good on paper as a sort of physical stress. But from a perspective of developing a hockey team, then it was kind of, it was irrelevant. So the place we, because we were constraining the coaches too much. So the place where we got to now um, is uh, essentially what we've got is we've characterised the sort of high speed running demand, the cardiovascular demand and the deceleration and acceleration demand of all the different types of drills that we do. So, um, and whether they're tactically orientated or technically orientated. Um, and then, but then, so we've got this kind of classification of sort of high, moderate, low. And then also what happens when you manipulate area per player. So the pitch dimensions and the, um, yeah, and the number of players within there. And then also what happens when you manipulate the amount of time they're working compared to where they're resting. Um, and then what we can essentially say is we can give the, the coaches broad or general rules. So what I will say to the coaches this week, for example, is we're putting the players through, uh, I'd like to put the players through a high training demand week. So therefore, um, you know, if you're doing uh, some 11 v 11 work, then, um, you know, keep the pitches big or you can even do 10 v 10 or 9 v 9 over a full pitch. Um, then from yeah from that perspective um keep the rest periods really really short between blocks um and you know rather than going we play in 415s you know why not play 420s so there so therefore we really are getting that overload we're in a really low demand week we might say something like okay can we play over three quarter pitch um can we try and make the uh rest periods much longer so the session density lower um and yeah, potentially can we make the pitch a bit narrower as well. So therefore, the um, the coaches, regardless of the the coaches have got some constraints to work with, but they, what it means is they're really free to work on whatever it is that they need to work on to develop the team. Um, so hopefully that uh, yeah, hopefully that's clear there. No, absolutely. 
So you, you mentioned ax cells and D cells and, and high speed running. Um, is there is there any and, and I almost kind of cringe when I ask these kind of questions, but what 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 other metrics are you looking at which which gives yeah. you what you're looking for? Well, you know, it's funny actually. We've looked at like I'm sure as everybody's done, they've looked at those traces and they've looked at the different zones and they've got mental on it and looked at so many different things. Um, the again, the starting place, the starting point I had was, and the reason why we started to use GPS and training to start with was coming back from that question: How can we develop the players physically just through playing hockey? So therefore. I wanted to have an understanding. It's like, well, what are the physical, what you know, the next question from that is, what potential physical overload can you get from playing hockey? Um, and you might get a an overload from a cardiovascular perspective. So therefore, the first metric we looked at was time above ninety percent of max heart rate, um, and time above eighty percent max heart rate. So we can characterise the sort of total amount of cardiovascular stress taking place. Um, the next metric we then looked at was um, based on you know the the theory that if you spend more time above your maximum aerobic speed, you've got you're going to be developing your um, efficiency, your kind of mechanical efficiency, and you're stressing uh, the metabolic system to help deliver energy aerobically. Um, and also, we know that everything above your max aerobic speed has got an exponentially increasing cost. So therefore, therefore, how much distance or how much time? to players spend on a session by session, drill by drill, week by week basis, above their individual maximum aerobic speeds. Um and then same again from a you know, what else what other types of overload can achieve? They'll probably be getting they'll be undertaking repeated sprints and they'll be so therefore and they'll obviously be decelerating a lot. So we'll um so again half above or below um, there we, we got them to do a sprint, and we got you know some through speed testing, and through um, like an agility based test, like a five by five type thing. We worked out what their maximum um, acceleration was and their maximum deceleration was, and how much time do they spend over? It was very arbitrary, fifty percent and eighty percent of that. So we get an idea of the kind of stress or how many times they go or encroach above that. So we can have an understanding of how many times they're getting a stimulus which might improve. Uh, their cap- capability to accelerate or decelerate. Um, so that was kind of starting position. The GP sport units we had was, um, and I, I didn't really trust or believe in the software that we had. If I'm sorry, if I, I don't know. <laughs> but um, and I think that the you know all the different, and that's not being discreditary towards GP sport, but I think that's all the different softwares that are out there. There's an element of, with all of them that there's a black box. Um, and I couldn't work out where how these numbers, some of the numbers were created. Um, so I went and built a bit of an, uh, a bit of an. Yeah, thank you, Philly, for my biomechanics PhD days. I'd spent a lot of time on Excel, so I was able to um, and and sort of uh, force traces and stuff. So I was able to build a little thing on Excel, which allowed me to um, filter the, the capture the raw data, filter it appropriately, and downsample the data to try get a. Um, a better reading of the, or a, a, yeah, a cleaner trace um, from the velocity component, that, that, and therefore allowing us to get a cleaner acceleration trace, so that we could be more confident in the, um, the 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 acceleration and deceleration data that we were getting. Um, yeah, so that's that, those were the starting points for the metrics. Um, obviously, things have moved on a little bit now. Um, 
we're now not just interested in you know can we develop the players physically through hockey because we can to some extent but we um from a tactical you know conditioning and a specificity perspective whatever that might mean um we can um you know we can certainly deliver that but for you know for tactical specific conditioning we can certainly deliver that but are we really going to get any overloads to really develop players that, you know their capability to perform repeated high intensity actions through hockey, you know, maybe not. So now it's more about understanding load um, and trying to manipulate uh, manipulate load on um, and and sort of training demand um, in exactly the way that we were discussing just before. So therefore, we look at things. We we do look at the individual so data relative to the individual maximum, but we also look at things on threshold basis as well. Like you know, cri- you know, critically, we need to we need to get up and down the pitch, and we want to try and beat our opponents at doing that then there has to be a certain it doesn't matter if you're going above you know if you're well above your maximum your, your threshold or not sometimes you've just got to go and run at a certain speed regardless of where your individual threshold is so that's why we've gone towards um um uh, not what they're called not individualized but the other type of uh thresholds there so um yeah um and that's quite like say for accelerations, decelerations, high speed running capability, yeah, high speed running, um, and yeah, cardiovascular. Um, so yeah, that's where we've got to, and we've actually started to look at repeated high intensity efforts as well now. So when we get a cluster of more than three of those actions within a thirty second period, um, we start to look at those and build up a bit of a. Uh, and I found that really really interesting. That is with the catapult software. Um, because we can then start asking the players questions or asking the uh, the coaches questions as well. Like when you're you say that you fatigue during a match, is it after you've made the first sprint or is it after you know? Is it because when you've made a few short clusters of sprints, you made three, four, five sprints? Is it towards the fourth or fifth one that you get fatigue? Or actually, no, you can deliver that really, really well. But it's those when those clusters start to pack up on each other, and as the game goes on, that's when you start to fatigue. Um, and you know you can ask the coach that question you can ask the athlete that question um, and then you get an idea or you get a sense from them about you know are they kind of limited by their capability to um, uh, yeah to their buffering capability or is it um, and they cut or their ability to tolerate the lactate that will accumulate from those repeated high intensity efforts um, which I think is different to repeated sprint ability um, or is it that you fatigue because you know your aerobic conditioning isn't appropriate to like to sustain and repeat these sort of chunks of work? Um, so yeah, that it's allowed us to provide a different insight into the conversations we have with our athletes and our coaches. I mean, you mentioned there about kind of questioning, <clears throat> excuse me, questioning the data that that you've been provided. Do you think there's a do you think there's almost an acceptance that when you purchase a bit of kit, whether it's a gym aware push band catapult gp sports whatever it may be that that is giving you the data that you want and think do you think there's there's that acceptance out there without actually questioning what you've been given what assumptions you're making off this off this bit of kit that you've bought yeah and i think that's it's one of those particularly when you're in the field as well like you just hope that the like the piece of kit you've been sold are reliable and valid and it's a bit of a ball ache to go and sort it out if it's not. Um, so, yeah, like there, there, is, there isn't assumptions out there. And they're kind of based on the marketing from these products. You think that well, there should be, but equally, 
Um, for, for me, actually, it, it, it's not about saying I'm, I can't use this piece of equipment or I can't use this piece of kit because it's not accurate. Um, it's about understanding the error. So that for, when I'm looking at pieces of equipment that I use or technology I use, what I want to try and do is just understand the error. So how, what's the magnitude of the error? Where does it come from? Because ultimately that's going to think, be the thing which drives the interpretation. Um, and those are the conversations I'm having with, like I spoke to you, about Megan um, and Tom. You know, let's try and really understand what our error is within these systems. And then when we're interpreting data and feeding it back to our coaches and athletes, we can say, actually, you know, this is a difference and this isn't a difference, although it might look like one. Um, and I think that's what's important. So I would sort of suggest to, like my suggestion for people who are just maybe not not used these types of equipment before is to just try and understand the error associated with them. Um, and there's some really, really easy ways of doing that. Um, and once you do that, you can be really confident in what numbers come out or at least the range of the numbers that come out. How, so you mentioned it there. How would you go about assessing that error? Uh, yes. So I'll take the GPS Not units. Not <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You can take the GPS units for a bit of a drive. Um, and calculate the variability between you know the distance travelled and the velocities that you capture within them, or I know you know you look at stuff that Martin Bouchard's done where he's he stuck them all in um hey, what's well, he stuck them all in a crate and took them on a pulley around the football pitch. Um, I think that would be the the kind of easiest way of doing it. You can either take the take the units on a bit of a, for a bit of a drive around the car park with you. Um, around the known distance or you could like say take them all in a box and take them for a bit of a walk across a known distance and see what comes back and then just then what you've got an idea of is you know if you know what's the variability in the distance traveled when you, you know that you've you know that you've done a kilometer what's the what's the variability in that and then you can work out kind of a coefficient of variation um, and then sort of very very simply you've got an idea of when you're reporting things back and if there's a sort of, let's say, for example, our variability, our coefficient of variation um, is sort of 6% and there's a uh, a 10, there's a 7% difference between players and you can say, well, that is actually a meaningful difference, um, whereas if it's uh, the variability in the data is between between sets is 12%, then you can say that 6% data, sorry, that 7% um, difference isn't meaningful. Um and you can do that with the, um, yeah, like say, you know, you can use a Smith machine for the velocity encoders, for example, and just they're all they're all on there at the same time, um, going up and down at a known, uh, sort of a known rate. Those would be the kind of some of the, the, you know, just simple little experiments that you can do with really simple statistics um, just to help you gain insight. And I think that, I think it's important to, that the experiments are simple and I think that it's important that the statistical methods are simple as well because ultimately this is about collecting or characterising information to help inform practice um, and not to um, yeah and not to be published in a scientific journal um, although there is an argument for saying that actually if, if the, the data that you're feeling back is that important then it should have undergone a similar scientific rigor to that published in an academic journal but you know the debate goes on Rob <laughs> um, yeah I mean <clears throat> excuse me uh, I just want to um, just move on to something well the, the topic that you uh, presented with with Jonas back in uh, back end of last year so you discussed um, change direction 
And yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned that you weren't you weren't an expert, but um, it came across uh, came across well to me. But um, just want to just discuss firstly the, your view of the determinants of of change direction speed and how you may go about assessing it. Yeah, so I, I think really, really simply from change direction speed perspective, it's and again, are we talking about change direction? Are we talking about my, my sort of mindset or paradigm in my head on change direction is shifted fairly like kind of fairly fundamentally and i'm starting to do quite a lot of reading into neuroscience and the sort of anatomy of the optic nerve going into the motor cortex and stuff like that because i I've really feel this is working with our current coach at the moment that the um you know the perception action cycle is kind of critical to agility and you know if you want to call it change of direction performance um, you can't separate the action away from the perception, and that's, and or, or equally the perception away from the actions that the athletes undertaken. I think from a purely mechanical perspective, your ability to change direction is going to be critically determined by your capability to kill your momentum and then produce momentum in a different direction. So fundamentally, it's about being able to absorb the momentum. Um, as fast and as efficiently as possible that you've got going into a certain direction change and then being able to produce it in an, a different direction. Um, so th- those are my kind of kill, key, th- those kind of my two key principles of kill, kill momentum um, and then produce it, which kind of sounds quite simple. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the way you do it and some of the studies that are out there and I, have to, I might have to get this PowerPoint up there so I can remember which studies these are now but um, um, the, the talk about the ability actually when you're you, when you change direction it's about being able to lower your the, the, you can more effectively kill your momentum by lowering your centre of mass um, more effectively uh, sorry by lowering your centre of mass by having a little bit more knee and hip flexion um, and by trying to put your um, centre of mass towards the direction of travel you're going to next. Um, and then when you're going, when you're actually making that change of direction, it's about making sure that your centre of pressure is outside of your um, centre of mass. And again, your centre of mass is in the direction of travel, travel and then you're producing force very, very rapidly. Um, and if you're making a sprint, and it's obviously getting into your kind of acceleration position, and I think the perception action cycle becomes so vital within this because uh, there's like loads of evidence out there as well that your kind of neuromechanics change when you're responding to a visual stimulus um, and a, particularly a task or sports specific visual stimulus. Um, there is large scale neuromechanical changes or neuromechanical differences between um, somebody who's making a change direction in offense versus defense, although the change of direction, the cut, for example, is exactly the same type of change of direction. So, for example, people who are um, defenders will typically have a larger uh, breaking impulse during their penultimate step than people who are attacking. Um, so essentially defending causes great mechanical stress for your body and you have to be stronger to be a defender versus an attacker they'll produce have a greater propulsive impulse um, than the defender will do so and that allows them to be able to move their center of mass faster so from a training and, and from a training perspective that means we've really got to make sure that these people are that the athletes that we're training 
um, it's kind of it's kind of critical that if you, particularly a, a defensive change of direction, they're capable of recognising the appropriate visual cues that allows them to orientate their body segments into a place where they can absorb their momentum or kill the momentum and produce a large breaking impulse as quickly as possible, um, and then to be able to reorientate their body in the direction of travel. Um, yeah. So I think those are kind of for me. The, the other, there's some great work out there um, by Ben Serple as well, um, and who was talking about the you know the kind of the co-contractions that take place, which modulate vertical stiffness. So that's particularly important when you're trying to make a change direction. Once you've killed your momentum, you're actually trying to go off in a different direction. Um, and essentially, what we've seen as well from uh, um, say some of the Zebis work as well um, that. There's a hamstring uh, firing latency when an unpredicted change of direction task. And what Ben Serple's research has shown is there's some very, very clear co-contraction strategies which take place around the ankle and the knee joints when you change direction. And if we know that those kind of co-contractions take place, there's a latency which takes place um, and they, they could be latent in response to the visual stimulus. Then essentially what we need to try and do is get people to fire their muscles harder than a, a you know, sort of harder and earlier and so we can do that by using visual stimulus and um a, you know context specific visual stimulus to uh, make sure people are firing their muscles far harder and earlier um, and that will allow them to orientate the body segments in the right position and to um and to be sort of effective at their task completion I've, I've, i don't know whether i've waffled on a little bit there or just no that's fine mate no 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 <laughs> no, no. What I was going to say next is, how have you integrated them thoughts into into an assessment of some of some kind? Yeah, definitely. So I think the um, so again, um, if we take it, if we take the two basic principles of it are sort of killing momentum from a pure physical perspective, um, killing momentum and producing momentum. Um, then what I want to try and do is find um, a couple of field-based assessments which allow me to understand how effective our players are at absorbing momentum um, versus versus producing it. Um, so the way that I um, the way that I think that you could definitely look at that is uh, a, a depth jump of increasing depth heights, um, a single leg depth jump over increasing depth heights. That's not a, a drop jump where we're looking for a limited contact time and we're look, looking for um, sort of stiff low limb joints um, and you know a nice high RSI uh, I'm, the jump I'm describing is one where you go, you land in a counter movement position and then you jump from there so you land off a box you know, 30, you know 20, 40, 60 centimetres um, in a counter movement position and you jump from there and that's a I think if you that's a real nice field based assessment to be able to tell, to be able to determine how effectively people can kill their momentum um which essentially as the box height increases what you've then got is a an increase in momentum when they hit the floor uh, because their velocity will be higher and their mass remains the same um and then you can have a look at how you know if fortunate enough to have a force plate you can you can have a look at things like contact times or um or um Sorry, absorb. You know um, the sort of absorption duration of the counter movement from that pe from that period. Um, and if not, you've just got your contact map, and you can have a look at your contact time <coughs> and your flight time. Um, so I think uh, another way of doing that 
would be with a single leg counter movement jump with uh, increasing barbell load. And you've got your, your linear encoder on that, you've got your velocity, your gym aware on that, for example. And you can determine, again, there's an increase in momentum because on the way down, there's, uh, yeah, on the way down, there's, uh, there's more mass on the way down, excuse me. Um, the only challenge with that, though, is that you could, you, maybe you're not particularly controlling momentum because you could just take the weight down slower. Um, so that might not be a very, very good determinant of the, absor- uh, of the ability to kill momentum compared to the increase in height depth jump. And I would use an increase in height drop jump, um, single leg drop jump, as a way of characterizing the ability to produce momentum or change your, or, yeah, to be able to uh, produce force going in a different direction. Um, and yeah, for kind of exactly the same reasons, larger momentum challenges, um, and there's an increase in stiffness demand as the boxes get higher. So then you can really use that information to, de- to determine how the player's got the structural or physical qualities to be able to perform or produce these tasks that you're asking them to do in a competitive environment, which I think is really critical. So, so all the all them ones there that you've mentioned, uh, all all single leg. Yeah. Why would you Why would you prefer that over a, a bilateral assessment? Oh, that's a good question. I think you know you could, you could definitely jump in. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being soft now. Yeah, yeah, do double it. <laughs> yeah, you could. Um, that was, you certainly do bilateral as well. But I think that um, when we look at our change direction tasks, that you, people tend to have to absorb most of their energy or kill most of their momentum. I keep saying kill momentum. I hope people know what I mean by that. But absorb most of their energy in preparation to change direction on single leg, um, whether that is landing, whether that is coming from a cut or from a turn, um, whether it's going into a high jump, which is a kind of really aggressive change of direction as well. These things tend to take place, um, or the critical instances tend to take place on one uh, on one leg. So you tend to absorb or kill your momentum predominantly on one leg and then produce it in, um, uh, pr- yeah, produce a direction change off the other one. Um, which is why I think the single leg is quite important. Cool. So just just moving on again to the the kind of focus of your of your chat before Christmas, which was um, looking at the uh, constraints led approach. So just want to describe to us what what that is and why you think it's important to to tick the boxes that you and your coaches want to tick to to get them better at ho- get your players better at hockey. Yeah, for sure. I I, I think. Um, so the constraints-led approach, um, for those who aren't familiar, was you know it's developed. It's dynamic systems theory. It's developed by um, um, many, many people, but Carl Newell um, is probably the, fam- the foremost founder of the work. Um, and essentially, um, what you're, the the kind of the theory is of dynamic systems theory is that um, every what you're always trying to do is complete a, a motor task. You're trying to complete a motor action. The intention is to complete a motor task. Now, the mechanics that you use to produce that motor task or to achieve the motor task um, will emerge based on the constraints of the environment, um, the task itself, and the athlete. So let's say, for example, the, you know, the, the intention is or what you're trying to achieve is jumping in the air to catch a ball. Um, now this is bad. I haven't actually used this example before, so I don't know. Where <laughs> gonna, uh, but yeah, so jumping in the air to catch a ball. Now let's say, for example, um, the task um, is you're jumping up in the air and 
the um, and suddenly someone's giving you a nudge in the air. You've got your football goalkeeper and you're in training and you're just taking the ball and there's no one there. And then suddenly the task changes ever slightly because now you're in a match. You're still trying to take that cross. You're trying to jump as high as you possibly can. But then you've got two Steven centre forwards smashing you and you're trying to take the you're trying to take the ball in that. So the task demands has changed ever so slightly, and therefore the mechanics that you've used or that you've uh, that have emerged in order to allow you to jump to take the ball in that training-based environment will have to be different to that competitive in that competitive scenario where you might require a little bit more trunk stiffness. You might have to jump with a bit more aggression, a little bit more momentum, and your knee might need to be higher to get one of them out of the way. Um, so mechanics emerge. Um, based on constraints um, and similar from a environmental perspective it might be a little bit windy um, or the ground might be wet um, and therefore that's going to alter the mechanics that emerge um, and you you might be fatigued or for example we, we might have done some training and you've got a lot and you, you know we've improved your power which might mean you can take the ball um, you can move off a little bit later you can take the ball a little bit higher in the air and, and that's the important thing from the perception action cycle that people just think it's perception leads to action but actually how you perceive a task demand will be determined by your action capability as well so if you could jump you know if if a ball's sort of you know five meters in the air you're not going to jump to get it because you don't feel that you've got the physical capability to go and deliver it so your perception um, and is determined by your action capability, so it's a cycle. Whereas if it's two meters in the air, you might back yourself for it, um, and therefore, yeah. So that, yeah, yeah. Therefore, the the, the action, uh, the action that you take is determined by not just the perception, but also your perception of your physical capabilities as well. So, long story short, I've rambled again. Please excuse me. Um, that your mechanics emerge based on the tasks that you want to try to complete um, and the constraints of the environment, the athlete um, and the task itself. What that means from a training perspective um, is particularly if, if what I want to try and do is, if we said, for example, we go back to the killing momentum, for exa um, example, uh, and how I've, I perceive that to be really critical um, in, in improving people's ability to change direction, how quickly and effectively can you kill your momentum? Now, so it's not good enough for the athletes that I work with to be able to do that in that scenario where I'm on the track with them um, and I'm telling them to stop dead on the line or we're doing a nice neat drill and they've got to sprint to the cone and sprint back. They've got to be able to do that under, in hockey-specific tasks, in context-related tasks. Um, I'm not just like, with that doesn't just mean stick and hand. We've got to make that related to... Um, to what's important and that's winning the ball or eliminating somebody so it's not good enough just to be say I want to make you more agile or I want to make you um, you know the, the task has got to be we've got to orientate our drills around winning the ball and so what I try and do is the constraints of the task or the environment or the athlete to try and get them into a position where we're forcing appropriate mechanics um, but they're still trying to win the ball. So that could be uh, an example where a player is, we've got a 1v1 scenario, it would be difficult for me to describe this without, um, yeah, without drawing it out. But we've got a 1v1 scenario, one player is the uh, attacker, one is the defender, they're 10 metres away um, from each other. 
facing each other. The attacker has got the ball um, and starts to go. The defender um, sprints up as fast as he possibly can. And what I've done is I've put a cone or I've put a mini hurdle um, sort of five metres away from the attacker. Okay. So at the point when the attacker and the defender are most likely to meet, the defender has got to get, uh, before they are allowed to sprint and chase the, the attacker down, they've got to get themselves over their cone. And what I always say to them, the one constraint on it, is you've got to land. If they're going, if they're going to the right of you, you've got to land on your right leg over that hurdle before you're allowed to sprint. And if they're landing to the left of you, you've got to land on that left side before they change before you change direction and go. So that means that both players are sprinting full tilt. The person, the defender, is going to have to make a change direction. What it's forcing them to do is because it's so fast and it's so competitive, and they want to get off and win the task, it's forcing them to absorb as much energy as possible off their inside leg before they sprint off. So we're forcing appropriate mechanics in a context-specific scenario. Does that does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Would, would, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it does, mate. Um, would you ever do that in a, in a situation that doesn't have hockey-specific actions? So there's no, there's no defender, there's no... You know, they haven't got a stick in the hand. Would you ever do something that's purely physical? Yeah, for sure. Um, the way we're orientating our training at the moment is we're doing sort of pure physical and then into hockey or, you know, and that could be into all different types of sports, so physical hockey, physical hockey. Um, I think the important thing to remember is one of the, like, it's important we don't get away from this, that, you know, one of the constraints on an athlete's capability to perform a task is the athlete themselves. So if they don't have the... The motor, if they don't have an appropriate motor strategy to change direction, if it's risky, for example, every time they change direction, their knee dives into valgus, or they don't get any range through their knee and hip and it all comes through their spine, or their ankle's unstable, um, then that's something that we've got to change uh, because, that, again, the constraint, the, the, the thing that's constrained the target is the athlete themselves. Um, so there'll certainly be scenarios where you know, you're kind of teaching them how to move or you're improving their physical capability to absorb momentum throughout their lower limb. So I don't think uh, these things don't certainly happen in isolation. And I'm, what I'm definitely not saying is that we should throw traditional S&C um, away. We still need to get our athletes strong because ultimately what that means is that they've had a change in their they've had a change in their capabilities. Therefore, they're they're more capable of um, or they're they're less constrained by themselves when they need to try and achieve a task. Mm-hmm. How, how, would, how would that approach change or would that approach change with, with younger athletes, less experienced athletes? No, I don't think, well, for, me, for me it wouldn't. Um, I think the, yeah, the idea being that we're still trying to develop fundamental physical capabilities because we understand that there's physical capabilities which limit our athletes' ability to um, perform tasks. We're still trying to, and what we're also trying to do is develop some of the perception action cycle, which is so critical to sport performance. I think there's some generic perception action cycles, like, um, you know, like for example, inception, I think space management, uh, manipulation of your body in relation to a number of opponents' body. Um, these are kind of across lots of different sports. Uh, so, yeah, space, time, and distance man- management. Um, and all the fundamental athletic skills, like being able to stand on one leg and balance, being able to hip hinge, being able to squat on one leg or bilaterally 
of appropriate mechanics, being able to resist rotational forces through your junk, uh, your trunk, uh, and your junk, and you know push and pull appropriately. Um, these are all fun because if an athlete doesn't have these these motor tasks or these motor skills available to them, um, then they simply won't be able to complete the tasks that you're asking them to do, which involve a perceptual element as well. So I think that it, you know, I don't think it diverges too far away from the traditional uh, long-term, you know, long-term athletic development model. But hopefully what it does is adds in um, some context. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm just um, I'm just conscious of time, mate, because I don't want to uh, I don't want to keep you all night. Um, you've got some Excel to do. You've got to get Excel, mate, and yeah, data, data crunch and stuff, no doubt, on a Sunday night. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'll um, I'll uh, I just want to thank you for your time, first of all. But just before I let you go, uh, where can people keep in touch with what you've got going on? Um, I'm on Twitter. I love a bit of Twitter. I like a tweet. Um, yeah. I love a retweet. Um, I think it's, uh, let me just check. I think it's at Ben underscore Rosenblatt. Uh, at Ben, let me check. I think, yeah, I think it's at Ben underscore Rosenblatt. Um, and uh, yeah, and if um, if people want to get in touch or speak directly, then um, just hit me up on Twitter and I'll send you my email address and, or phone number and we can have a chat. More cool. than happy to stay in touch. Any, any more speaking engagements on the horizon? Yeah, I think there's a there's a few coming up actually. Um, let me get back in. Yeah, there's a few. I'm doing the um, football science and medicine one, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, so when's that? Where's that? Uh, that is. Oh, you've killed me here. Hold Sorry, on. mate. <laughs> Look at everything now. Um, oh no, and it's taken ages to open up. I can't quite. I think it's in May. Sorry. Is, is it, it all right? Okay. Is it the one at St George's Park? That's the one at St George's okay. Park. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I'll be talking there, and I'm looking forward to doing that one because that's that's um, uh, that was speaking to John Goodman. Basically, the uh, the top topic is if I worked in again in football, I would da 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 da. So oh, that's nice. I'm really, really excited to present on that one, okay. even though it's... I can't remember when it is. <laughs> <laughs> is it, yeah, it's normally it's uh, yeah, it's normally in the summer. It's normally the off season. Won't it be May or June or something? Yeah. Exactly. So did you say you were speaking anywhere else? Science and football and... I can't remember. You've, you've absolutely stumped me there. You've killed me it's there. Fine. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a few things cut out. <laughs> no worries. Well, um, Mine's the team at the moment. <laughs> that's fine, mate. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No doubt people will... Uh, you'll, you'll tweet. You'll, you'll tweet, put it on Twitter and then retweet it. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I yeah. can't see anyone coming to a conference just to listen to me. Though, so. <laughs> oh, don't be humble. Too humble. Um... So yeah, I really appreciate your time um, giving up 50 minutes uh, on, a, on a Sunday night. So, uh, mate, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's a real honour to be invited to to be on this. So thank you. No pleasure, absolutely pleasure. But um, I'll uh, I'll let you go and uh, we'll keep in touch. Nice one. Cheers, All right, Rob. Pal. Thanks, mate. Thank you, mate. See you, pal. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 70 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ben. Just before I let you go, if you are interested in the Pacey Performance Webinar Series, Episode 3 with Matt Jordan, if you go over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Matt, all of the information is over there. Also, if you want to check out any previous episodes of the podcast, you can go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. 
So thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you in episode 71.